divisions in our midst, that as we grow more secular, that we would find the unity of the Spirit amidst uh, and amongst our, our various... We uh, continue this morning in uh, the book of Luke, and we are getting very close to the end. If you would uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 23. We will be at the very end of Luke chapter 23. If you have one of your, uh, these Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you, uh, that will be page 575. Otherwise, you do what you need to do to get to Luke chapter 23 in, in your Bible of choosing. Very short passage this morning. We will finish up the book of Luke just after the new year, and then we've got some, some new things planned. Verse 50 through 56 this morning. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. In the early years of Christianity, it could from time to time, place to place, be dangerous or impossible to meet publicly. But of course, meeting together is an essential part of Christianity. We cannot merely worship in isolation. We are commanded in Scripture to come together. And from antiquity, we have done it regularly on the Lord's Day at a minimum. But what do you do when you can't easily or legally meet? Beneath the city of Rome were vast, and and still are today, vast catacombs, the the burial places for Romans. As I understand it, the Romans preferred to not deal with death. They were afraid of it. They'd rather not think about death. And so, rather than have above-ground markings, like we have, or above-ground graves, like we might find in New Orleans, or they might have found in ancient Palestine... Those things would have been unthinkable. Instead of that, they they had slaves dig these underground corridors and tunnels. And there, slaves would bury the dead when it was time, out of sight and out of mind. With no foot traffic to speak of these underground tombs, after the sun set and the light became dim, became a safe place for those early Christians to worship. They met with each other, sang with each other, encouraged one another, prayed with one another amidst the dead. They lived among the dead. 
As we turn to our passage this morning, let me start by saying that we tend to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the the biographies of Jesus, as sort of the facts about Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, In fact, that's really important. We We can look at these four historical documents and put together a rough chronology of Jesus' life and death. Uh, the most important events therein, and, and what those events mean for us. And, and because of passages like this one we have in Luke 23, 50 through 56, uh, we have some fundamental tenets of Christian belief, like the fact that Jesus is buried. He was placed in a tomb. He was really dead. And that's, that's no small point. And so the early Christians emphasized that at, at no length. Because, you know, there were... From very early times, myths spread to discredit the Christian movement that, that perhaps Jesus didn't really die or that his, uh, he wasn't really buried or that this was all made up. E- even today, uh, faithful Muslims refuse to believe that Jesus died because they don't believe. They believe that Jesus was a prophet and they refuse to believe that God would allow a prophet to die. We sometimes sing in that, that modern praise song, they laid him down in Joseph's tomb. Even today, we, we remember this point. The, the Apostles' Creed from early years had, had what was probably a late edition. It probably wasn't original to the creed, but katothanta esta katotata, which uh, through Latin into English became he descended into hell, but, but literally means he descended to the lowers which probably just means he was entombed. He was really dead. Not mostly dead. Not almost dead. But fully dead. He was dead, dead. Though he was God in the flesh, and he died in every meaningful way that human beings commonly die, he experienced death in all of its fullness. And that includes time in burial. But Luke's not content to tell us just that Jesus died and was buried. If he had, it would have been sufficient to teach us that theological truth. But he has some details here. He speaks of Joseph and he speaks of the women and and tells us some things about them. And these are not just interesting tidbits, not first century gossip. They must be more than that. Because each of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John in their biographies include details about Jesus' death and burial, but they include different details. Not contradictory details, but different ones. Mark, for example, tells us that Joseph was rich. Luke doesn't tell us that. John tells us that the tomb was in a garden. Matthew and Mark don't tell us that. Since we're pretty sure that Mark, or excuse me, that Luke knew of Mark's biography of Jesus' life and possibly Matthew's when he was writing this, he had some knowledge certainly of the same sources. We have to conclude then that, as Luke said in his introduction to the book, he has carefully selected and ordered the details that he thought were important, as he put it, that we may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. All the way back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 
And so Luke included these details, I think, to teach us something, to instruct us. And I think it's this. We must live in Jesus' death. We must live in Jesus' death. And he gives us two examples of the sort of people who can live in Jesus' death and what that looks like to live in Jesus' death. Joseph and the women. And because most people, so that'll kind of be our outline, but because most people cannot or will not live with Jesus' death, he wants to show us what that looks like. So what sort of people will that be? But before we we get there, I want to back up just one second because I said we must live in Jesus' death. And that might be, well, that, that might not sound like something that's very attractive to you. That might not sound like something you want to do. And so let me take for a moment the opportunity to impress on you that it is essential, that it is necessary to live in Jesus' death. It's not obvious that we want to live in Jesus' death because death is not glamorous. In fact, maybe we can sympathize with the Romans who were afraid of death and wanted to have nothing to do with death and wanted to put it as far out of sight as possible. Because it's pretty much taken as a sign of defeat, isn't it? No matter the circumstances, we call death a loss. We lost a battle to cancer. Whatever the circumstances, death seems to be the opposite of victory, doesn't it? Signifies our frailty. It reminds us that our bodies are just giving way to the various forces of this world and and they can no longer compete and so they die and we have a loss so we reject death and it's understandable we only celebrate death and then very rarely when we believe deep down that someone deserves to die they just maybe they did something awful and and we just think that that is appropriate we want to get at them but Otherwise, we generally reject death, and we abhor it. We hate it. So why would we want to have anything to do with death? Well, imagine a person who, through any number of congenital abnormalities, lifestyle choices, disease contractions, accidents, or, or injuries, has an organ going bad. And the only hope for this individual is an organ transplant. But, but for that to happen, a suitable donor must be found. And, and not just found, but the, the most likely case here is that a suitable donor must die so that the patient can receive an organ via a transplant. Millions have experienced this set of circumstances, and, and millions more have, have experienced it as a friend or family member. And And in such a case, I can only imagine, not having been through it myself, that there exists a a strange paradox. Even while normal human sentiment hates death, the attempt to stave off death involves hoping for one. 
And when it does occur, when, when a matching donor dies, it is at once both tragic and a cause for celebration. It's a strange paradox. But it's a death that a patient wants to associate with. In fact, it's a death that gives life. A fundamental tenet of Christian belief is that death is an unnatural phenomenon. It is the result of our sinfulness. It is the result of our rebellion against God. It is our deserved punishment for that rebellion. And so every death is a reminder of our separation from God. A reminder that things are not the way they ought to be and that something is fundamentally wrong in the universe. (laughs) And in that sense, the organ donor, perhaps surprisingly, perhaps unfortunately, nevertheless deserved to die. There's, There's no one among us that doesn't deserve to die. It's it's a tragedy, yes, but every death is tragic. Everyone must die. But Jesus' death is different than other deaths for one very particular reason. He didn't deserve to die. Jesus never rebelled. Jesus never sinned. Because he was God himself... He had lived among us as one of us, but he had done so as one who was perfect. He didn't deserve to die, so his death wasn't for his sins. Instead, his death was for others' sins. In that way, he paid the penalty for other sinners' sins. He took the punishment so that they could go free. In that way, his death was still tragic. It was a different sort of tragedy because he didn't deserve it. And it was still a reminder that we are separated from God. But it's also hope. Because it means that death does not need to be in vain. Death does not need to be the end. Death does not need to win. If Jesus' death can take the place of my death or your death, then that would be a cause for celebration. I would want to associate myself with a death like that. It's better than any organ transplant because an an organ transplant fixes one part of my body while making the rest of it weaker with immunosuppressant drugs. But Jesus' death rescues body and soul without compromise. That is an amazing proposition. So then how do we get in on that? What does it look like to live in Jesus' death? What does it look like to be associated with Jesus' death? And this is where Luke points us to Joseph and the women. So, turning to Joseph, let's remind ourselves of the facts of what he did, which is why he's in this scene in the first place. So, So Luke writes in verses 52 and 53, 
this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. So Joseph has associated himself with Jesus' death in order to see to it that Jesus' body was buried. And that's significant for a couple reasons. First, most simply, Jewish law demanded that something be done with the body. Deuteronomy 21 tells us this. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. So Joseph's actions here were done in part in the interest of keeping Jewish law. But we know from the other biographies of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and John that preparations were already being made to ensure that the bodies would be dealt with quickly. And, and Joseph wouldn't likely have been responsible for this work anyway. This would have been the responsibility of the, the Roman soldiers or maybe some slaves, somebody pretty low on the totem pole. And, and so this brings us to a second reason why what Joseph did was significant. Because victims of crucifixion were ostensibly criminals, and common criminals at that, I, I suspect they were generally poor. They were typically thrown into a common grave, a hole dug hastily for that day's victims. And so Joseph was ensuring that Jesus' body was given a proper burial, an honorable burial. And more than that, really, this was a hewn grave. It was cut out of the stone. So it was crafted, and it involved human work to be made appropriate for the task. Most of the population would have used small caves that were already set up well. They already had a little opening there, just naturally occurring caves uh, that were available in the region. Or they would have made shallow holes in the ground that they covered with rocks, way of marking where the body was. And, and so that's how a, a person of ordinary means might have handled this situation. The fact that this is a hewn grave means that this was a rich man's tomb. And what's more, Jesus would be the first body laid in it. And so in his death, Jesus was receiving the very best. So Joseph's actions were about honoring Jesus, even in Jesus' death. So now that we know what he did, which is to honor Jesus, let's turn to who and what Joseph was. Because Luke gives us a ton of details in a few short words. First, he's from the Jewish town of Arimathea. Now, that doesn't tell us much beyond geography, and, and even there we're at a bit of a loss because the location has been lost to history. Some early thinkers identified it with the hometown of the prophet Samuel from the Old Testament, a town called Ramathaim Zophim, but we really don't know. 
But then Luke hits us with five descriptors in quick order. And let's focus in on three of them that are, let's say, maybe religious in nature, and then we'll, we'll hit the other two. Uh, Luke calls him good, righteous, and waiting for the kingdom. Good and righteous are joined together, and we should probably interpret them together. The word good itself is not used very often of persons in the Bible. In fact, one of those few instances is when Jesus reminds a man who comes to him with a question, he calls Jesus good teacher, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is no one good but God alone. And Luke records that himself. And so Luke knew that when he called uh, Joseph good, he also knew that there was a sense in which no one is good but God alone. And, And so We have to expand the scope of our content here and take good and righteous together. Uh, righteous is a much more specific word, and it, and it means a person who conforms to God's standards. And putting those together in light of what else we see here, uh, we should probably understand this to mean that Joseph it wasn't perfect, but that he was obedient to the Jewish law, he tried to follow the Jewish law, and when he failed, he probably repented of his, his sins and offered sacrifices. He's, he's certainly not indifferent to the moral demands of God that, that he has established for human beings. Instead, he's cognizant of those moral demands, and he strives to live by them. Not perfect, but he's that, that guy that you see, and you know, compared to everyone else you know, you say, that dude's doing something right in his life. That dude has got it together. But he's also waiting for the kingdom. And that's significant because it fits with the posture of the faithful that we see throughout the book of Luke. All the way back at the beginning of this year, we looked at a guy named Simeon, who Luke described as waiting for the consolation of Israel. And we looked at a a woman named Anna, who was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Their faithfulness to God was expressed in expectation that God would break into history and change the fortunes of his people when he alone was king. And in Luke 11, we saw that Jesus taught his followers to pray, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So Jesus' disciples were to live in confident hope that the kingdom of God would come. And Joseph shared this confident hope. But there's two other characteristics mentioned by Luke. He was a member of the council. And that means that Joseph was a part of the Sanhedrin, that had just condemned Jesus to die. He apparently was in the minority who had not consented to their decision and action. Previously, Luke had described the council's actions in in hyperbolic terms. They seemed almost like a unified voice. Here we see that there was at least a little bit of dissent. How great was it? We don't know. Was Joseph the only one? We don't know. But he would have had a front row seat to watch these events unfold. And his position 
probably afforded him the ability to gain an audience with Pilate, the Roman governor, to ask for the body in the first place. Of course, by doing this, Joseph of Arimathea is not making a mere passing association with Jesus. By honoring the man that the Sanhedrin had just condemned, he was staking his reputation, his authority, and his power, and his very name. He was putting that all on the line. This was a risky association with Jesus. An association that could cost him everything that he had built up in this world. And yet here was Joseph of Arimathea using his power and his privilege for one end, to honor Jesus at great personal cost. So the one who would live in Jesus' death is called to use his or her power and privilege to honor Jesus, even if it comes at great personal cost. And it might. Joseph wasn't the most powerful man in Jerusalem, let alone in the Roman Empire. But he used what he had. Your relative power and prestige and privilege in this world might be greater than or less than Joseph's. You might be the least powerful and privileged person you know. You might be the most powerful and privileged person you know. Whether you're a congressperson or a commoner, whether you're uh, adored or abhorred, you are called to take what you have in honor of Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus, so you're not a Christian, you should know Jesus teaches us to count the cost. Perhaps you're interested in following this Jesus, and I am glad, and I am excited about that fact. But know what you're getting into. Following Jesus could cost you everything. It'll be worth it. I can promise you that. But it might cost you everything. Christians, that might mean that those dreams that you're chasing, what you think is going to set your life right, those things have to be put on the line for Jesus. You can't be afraid of losing your reputation. You can't be afraid of losing your social standing, your social position, or even your own job. The things that we might live for in this life, some of them are good, some of them are silly, some of them are evil. But all of them have to be put on the table and placed at risk. A great personal cost for the sake of honoring Jesus 
Christ. As a church at Gateway, what would it look like if we were filled with people who were risking everything at great personal cost to honor Jesus Christ? How would that change the way that we converse with each other? How would that change our dependence on each other? How would that change our prayer life? How would that change our reliance on God? We have a tendency to to rely on our our bank accounts and we rely on our our income streams and we we rely on uh, friends and family and, and, and our connections and Uh, We rely on just the fact that our world is going to continue to be sort of the way it was yesterday. We woke up today expecting that this Sunday would be a lot like last Sunday and that tomorrow we'll go into work a lot like we went into work on Friday and things will continue. But if we risk it all, if everything is on the line... Our dependencies change, don't they? We have no security that tomorrow will be like yesterday. And so we place our trust wholly in God's hands. We rely on one another in the church, our fellow risk takers. Joseph of Arimathea put everything on the line to honor Jesus. And so, those of us who would live in Christ's death are called to risk everything to honor Jesus. Well, secondly, there's this group of unnamed women here in Luke. Mark and and Matthew's biographies tell us they were at least two in number. Two different women with the very common name Mary. There was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, neither of whom were the same as Mary, the mother of Jesus. Maybe Luke didn't think his reader would know them. Remember, Luke is writing to Theophilus, probably uh, a Roman political appointee of some type. And so Luke doesn't mention their names because he doesn't think it'll be relevant to Theophilus. Or or maybe he just wants to really highlight the fact that they were women. Um, In either case, they stand out compared to Joseph. They have no power. They have no prestige. And the first century cultural opinion on women was not always flattering. And so within the narrative of Luke, these are nameless nobodies. But notice what we learn about them. It says the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. What these women planned to do for Jesus was to anoint his body with fragrant oils and perfumes in order to detract from the stench of his body as it decomposed. I don't know how well that worked. I don't know 
whether they just they neutralized the scent was it like was it like Febreze or was it did it just mask it somewhat you know or it made this overall scent better kind of I don't know but this was Jewish custom at the time they didn't embalm bodies they weren't Egyptians they weren't trying to preserve people forever they believed that God would resurrect the dead in the final analysis, and so they simply allowed bodies to decay, but they didn't want them to smell bad. Um, what these, uh, what's interesting is that we know from John's biography, the Gospel of John, that Nicodemus, an apparently well-known teacher among the Jews, also came to the tomb and made some preparations on the body. It, it's possible that the, the women and Nicodemus didn't make a connection with one another, I suppose, um, they both planned this. Nicodemus uh, got there earlier or had it, things ready first. Um, it's also possible that Nicodemus only minimally prepared the body. He did, you know, some basic things to make sure that it got through the weekend and the women were going to do the job right, um, properly and fully <clears throat> after the Sabbath had passed. But whatever the case, this would have been significant cost to the women. Moreover, it would have come with a social cost as well, touching a dead body. Touching a dead body in in Judaism made a person ritually unclean, and uh, then they would have been unclean, uh, possibly for the Passover. So there can be no doubt that these women also associate with Jesus at great personal cost. They're similar to Joseph in that way, and they're similar to Joseph in another way. Uh, Luke makes a point that they rested on the Sabbath. You didn't necessarily need to point that out, but it tells us that these were faithful women. They were following the Jewish law. There was work to be done. There was work that they wanted to do. There was work that was time-sensitive. This body was going to start to stink, but they were faithful to observe the Jewish law. But there's something in this passage that makes them stand apart from Joseph of Arimathea. Luke writes that these women had come with him from Galilee. That is, these women had followed Jesus from the beginning of his ministry, which started near the Sea of Galilee in northern Judea, and that's where most of the action in the book of Luke takes place. And they continued following him to the cross and now to his grave. They followed him from the beginning to the end. They did not shirk back. And this, I think, points us to a second reality about those who would associate with Jesus' death. Those who would live in Jesus' death. They follow Jesus to the end. They don't shirk. They don't fall back. This is not only uh, evidence, but is a promise of Scripture. But these... Can you imagine what it took for these two women to follow Jesus? Literally follow Jesus. Followed his teaching? Yes. 
but literally followed in his footsteps for three years, at least the better part of three years, from Galilee to walk with him to Jerusalem, to be there when the crowds accused him, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees challenged him, to be there when he was arrested, when he was placed on a sham trial behind, before the Jewish Sanhedrin, then before Pontius Pilate, then before King Herod, before going back to Pilate, to watch the one that they had followed be crucified, executed in tortuous fashion, and still they followed. The disciples, the the twelve apostles have scattered. They're gone. They've left the scene. But these two women are undeterred, and they follow him to the tomb to see where he was laid, to ensure that they could honor him in his death. If we are to receive the benefits of living in Jesus' death, we have to be those who follow to the end. We have to be those who follow to the end. There is no time to shirk back. The battles that we are facing are great. And so Jesus isn't looking for people who will follow him for a time. He had plenty of those. Some of them even looked like the real deal, like Judas. And we know that on more than one occasion, Jesus' demands, Jesus' teachings became too much for the crowds, and they left him. But these women followed him to the end. So make sure you know what you're signing up for. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you want to uh, uh, get in on the benefits of his death, if you want to live in his death, know that it is not a temporary assignment. Know that it is not a momentary job. It is not seasonal employment. It is a lifetime. And it is an eternity. The author of of Hebrews says that I should have had this in my notes here. The author of, uh, the author of Hebrews tells us um, that we know we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Chapter 3, verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's a, a little bit of a basic logic. I don't know if you took a logic course in, in undergrad, um, but if you've ever taken a logic course, a little bit of basic logic will tell you 
that if you have an if-then statement, then you know that, so if the first part is true, then the, the then part has to be true, right? And then there's something called a, a contrapositive, which means that if the then part is false, it means that the if part is false. So in other words, if we say if, we, we can read it this way, uh, if we hold our confidence firm to the end, then we have come to share in Christ. Let me put that in if-then format, right? So then if that's true, it's also true if we have not come to share in Christ, then we will not hold our original confidence firm to the end. And that's a scary thing when you think about it. But what the author of Hebrews effectively is saying is that uh, the fact that you endure to the end, that you maintain your confidence in Christ to the end, is the proof that you were ever associated with Christ's death in the first place. It is the proof positive that you were saved we say in the first place, we use that term saved. Why do we use that term? Because a saving or a rescuing is what's happened. We deserve to die. We deserve to be punished for eternity in hell. And we are rescued from that penalty by Jesus' death and resurrection. So we're saved and so the proof positive that we've been saved is that we endured to the end. And if we don't endure to the end, it's proof positive that we weren't ever saved. These women endured to the end. They followed Jesus when he was a rising celebrity in Galilee. And they followed Jesus when he was an executed criminal and tossed in a hewn stone grave. If we want to be associated with Jesus in his death, we will endure to the end. We will follow Jesus from the first to the last. So this is why I think that Luke has given us these details of Joseph and the women. He wants us to see what it looks like to live in the death of Jesus. There is no Christian living apart from the death of Jesus. We must embrace the death of Jesus. And what that looks like is honoring Jesus despite the risk of great personal cost. and a faithfulness to follow from the first to the last. But it's a journey that's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that Jesus died. In this paradox of tragedy and blessing, we rejoice He did not deserve to die, and yet he willingly gave his life so that we saints could go free. 
We are thankful for that salvation. We are thankful for that hope that you have laid out. And it is nothing to give up all of this for the sake of everything that he offers. Make us steadfast in that hope. And may we not be among those who shrink back to destruction, but those who stand fast and push ahead to eternal life. And we pray for those who are on the fence about following Jesus, for those who are curious about following Jesus, for those who do not know the life of following, that they would run to his death, knowing that in his death is their life. And though it may cost them everything, there are riches untold that they will receive and enjoy. For all of us, may those riches be our treasure and delight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.